Hi, we're going to be reading Walk Two Moons by Sharon Creech as a sixth grade class this year. Um, you'll really enjoy this book. It's about a girl named Salamanca Tree Hiddle who is on a journey to find her mother. Chapter One, A Face at the Window. Gramps says that I'm a country girl at heart, and that is true. I have lived most of my 13 years in Bybanks, Kentucky, which is not much more than a caboodle of houses roosting in a green spot along the Ohio River. Just over a year ago, my father plucked me up like a weed and took me and all our belongings. No, that is not true. He did not bring the chestnut tree, the willow, the maple, the hayloft, or the swimming hole, which all belonged to me. And we drove 300 miles straight north and stopped in front of a house in Euclid, Ohio. No trees, I said. This is where we're going to live? No, my father said. This is Margaret's house. The front door of the house opened and a lady with wild red hair stood there. I looked up and down the street. The houses were all jammed together like a row of birdhouses. In front of each house was a tiny square of grass, and in front of that was a thin gray sidewalk running alongside a gray barn. Where's the barn? I asked. The river? The swimming hole? Oh, Sal, my father said, come on, there's Margaret. He waved to the lady at the front door. We have to go back. I forgot something. The lady with the wild red hair opened the door and came out onto the porch. In the back of my closet, I said, under the floorboards, I put something there and I've got to have it. Don't be a goose. Come and see Margaret. I did not want to see Margaret. I stood there looking around and that's when I saw the face pressed up against an upstairs window next door. It was a round girl's face and it looked afraid. I didn't know it then, but that face belonged to Phoebe Winterbottom a girl who had a powerful imagination, who would become my friend and who would have many peculiar things happen to her. Not long ago, when I was locked in a car with my grandparents for six days, I told them the story of Phoebe. And when I finished telling them, or maybe even as I was telling them, I realized that the story of Phoebe was like the plaster wall in our old house in Bybanks, Kentucky. My father started chipping away at a plaster wall in the living room of our house in Bybanks shortly after my mother left us one April morning. Our house was an old farmhouse that my parents had been restoring room by room. Each night as he waited to hear from my mother, he chipped away at that wall. On the night we got the bad news that she was not returning. He pounded and pounded on that wall with a chisel and a hammer. At two o'clock in the morning, he came up to my room. I was not asleep. He led me downstairs and showed me what he had found. Hidden behind the wall was a brick fireplace. The reason that Phoebe's story reminds me of that plaster wall and the hidden fireplace is that beneath Phoebe's story was another one, mine. Chapter two, the Chickabitty starts a story. It was after all the adventures of Phoebe that my grandparents came up with a plan to drive from Kentucky to Ohio, where they would pick me up, and then the three of us would drive 2,000 miles west to Lewiston, Idaho. This is how I came to be locked in a car with them for nearly a week. 
It was not a trip that I was eager to take, but it was one I had to take. Gramps had said, we'll see the whole ding-dong country. Graham squeezed my cheeks and said, this trip will give me a chance to be with my favorite chickabitty again. I am, by the way, their only chickabitty. My father said that Graham couldn't read maps worth a hill of beans and that he was grateful that I had agreed to go along and help them find their way. I was only 13, and although I, have, I did have a way with maps, it was not really because of that skill that I was going nor was it to see the whole ding-dong country that Graham and Gramps were going. The real reasons were buried beneath piles and piles of unsaid things. Some of the real reasons were, number one, Graham and Gramps wanted to see Mama, who was resting peacefully in Lewiston, Idaho. Number two, Graham and Gramps knew that I wanted to see Mama, but that I was afraid to. Number three, Dad wanted to be alone with the red-headed Margaret Cadaver. He had already seen Mama, and he had not taken me. Also, although it wasn't as important, Dad did not trust Grandma Gramps to behave themselves along the way unless they had me with them. Dad said that if they tried to go on their own, he would save everyone a lot of time and embarrassment by calling the police and having them arrested before they even left the driveway. It might sound a bit extreme for a man to call the police on his own tottery old parents, but when my grandparents got in a car, trouble just naturally followed them like a filly trailing behind a mare. My grandparents' hiddle were my father's parents, full up to the tops of their heads with goodness and sweetness, and mixed in with all that goodness and sweetness was a large dash of peculiarity. This combination made them interesting to know, but you could never predict what they would do or say. Once it was settled that the three of us would go, the journey took on an alarming, expanding need to hurry that was like a walloping great thundercloud assembling around me. During the week before we left, the sound of the wind was hurry, 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 and at night, even the silent darkness whispered, rush, rush, rush. I did not think we would ever leave, and yet I did not want to leave. I did not really expect to survive the trip, but I had decided to go, and I would go, and I had to be there by my mother's birthday. This was extremely important. I believed that if there was any chance to bring my mother back home, it would happen on her birthday. If I had said this aloud to my father or to my grandparents, they would have said that I might as well try to catch a fish in the air, so I did not say it out loud. But I believed it. Sometimes I'm as ornery and stubborn as an old donkey. My father says I lean on broken reeds and will get a face full of swamp mud one day. When at last Grandma Gramps Hiddle and I set out the first day of the trip, I prayed for the first 30 minutes solid. I prayed that we would not be in an accident. I was terrified of cars and buses and that we would get there by my mother's birthday, seven days away, and that we would bring her home. Over and over, I prayed the same thing. I prayed to trees. This was easier than praying directly to God. There was nearly always a tree nearby. As we pulled onto the Ohio Turnpike, which is the flattest, straightest piece of road in God's whole creation, 
Graham interrupted my prayers. Salamanca? I should explain right off that my real name is Salamanca Tree Hiddle. Salamanca, my parents thought, was the name of the Indian tribe to which my great-great-grandmother belonged. My parents were mistaken. The name of the tribe was Seneca, but since my parents did not discover the error until after I was born, they were, by then, used to my name. It remained Salamanca. My middle name, Tree, comes from your basic tree, a thing of such beauty to my mother that she made it part of my name. She wanted to be more specific and use sugar maple tree, her very favorite, but Salamanca sugar maple tree hiddle was a bit much even for her. My mother used to call me Salamanca, but after she left, only my grandparents hiddle called me Salamanca when they were not calling me Chickabitty. To most other people, I was Sal, and to a few boys who thought they were especially amusing, I was Salamander. In the car, as we started our long journey to Lewiston, Idaho, my grandmother Hiddle said, Salamanca, why don't you entertain us? What sort of thing do you have in mind? Gramps said, how about a story? Spin us a yarn. I certainly know, do know heaps of stories, but I learned most of them from Gramps. Graham suggested I tell one about my mother. That I could not do. I had just reached the point where I could stop thinking about her every minute of every day. Gramps said, well then, what about your friends? You got any tales to tell about them? Instantly, Phoebe Winterbottom came to mind. There was certainly a hog's belly full of things to tell about her. I could tell you an extensively strange story, I warned. Oh, Good, Graham said, delicious. And that is how I happened to suspend my tree prayers and tell them about Phoebe Winterbottom, her disappearing mother, and the lunatic. Chapter three, bravery. Because I, saw, I, because I first saw Phoebe on the day my father and I moved to Euclid, I began my story of Phoebe with the visit to the red-headed Margaret Cadavers where I also met Mrs. Partridge, her elderly mother. Margaret nearly fell over herself being nice to me. What lovely hair, she said, and aren't you sweet? I was not sweet that day. I was being particularly ornery. I wouldn't sit down and I wouldn't look at Margaret. As we were leaving, Margaret whispered to my father, John, have you told her yet how we met? My father looked uncomfortable. No, he said, I, I tried, but she doesn't want it to know. Now that was the truth, absolutely. Who cares, I thought. Who cares how he met Margaret Cadaver? When at last we left Mrs. Cadaver and Mrs. Partridge, we drove for approximately three minutes. Two blocks from Margaret Cadaver's was the place where my father and I were now going to live. Tiny squirt trees, little bird houses in a row, and one of those bird houses was ours. No swimming hole, no barn, no cows, no chickens, no pigs. Instead, a little white house with a miniature patch of green grass in front of it. It wasn't enough grass to keep a cow alive for five minutes. Let's take a tour, my father said rather too heartily. We walked through the tiny living room into the miniature kitchen 
and upstairs into my father's pint-sized bedroom and on into my pocket-sized bedroom and into the wee bathroom. I looked out the upstairs window down into the backyard. Half of the tiny yard was a cement patio and the other half was another patch of grass that our imaginary cow would devour in two bites. There was a tall wooden fence all around the yard and to the left and right of our yard were other identical fenced plots. After the moving van arrived and two men crammed our bivang's furniture into our birdhouse, my father and I inched into the living room, crawling over sofas and chairs and tables and boxes, boxes, boxes. Mmm, my father said, it looks as if we tried to squeeze all the animals into the chicken coop. Three days later, I started school and saw Phoebe again. She was in my class. Most of the kids in my new school spoke in quick, sharp bursts and dressed in stiff new clothes and wore braces on their teeth. Most girls wore their hair in exactly the same way, in a shoulder length bob, that's what they called it, with long bangs that they repeatedly shook out of their eyes. We once had a horse who did that. Everybody kept touching my hair. Don't you ever cut it, they said. Can you sit on it? How do you wash it? Is it naturally black like that? Do you use conditioner? I couldn't tell if they liked my hair or if they thought I looked like a wang doodle. One girl, Mary Lou Finney, said the most peculiar things, like out of the blue she would say, omnipotent, or beef brain. I couldn't make any sense of it. There were Megan and Christy who jumped up and down like parched peas, Moody Beth Ann, and pink-cheeked Alex. There was Ben who drew cartoons all day, and a peculiar English teacher named Mr. Berkway. And then there was Phoebe Winterbottom. Ben called her Freebie Ice Bottom and drew a picture of a bumblebee with an ice cube on its bottom. Phoebe tore it up. Phoebe was a quiet girl who stayed mostly by herself. She had a pleasant round face and huge, enormous sky blue eyes. Around this pleasant round face, her hair, as yellow as a crow's foot, curled in short ringlets. During that first week when my father and I were at Margaret's, we ate there three times that week, I saw Phoebe's face twice more at her window. Once I waved at her, but she didn't seem to notice. And at school, she never mentioned that she had seen me. Then one day at lunch, she slid into the seat next to me and said, Sal, you're so courageous. You're ever so brave. To tell you the truth, I was surprised. You could have knocked me over with a chicken feather. Me? I'm not brave, I said. You are, you are brave. I was not. I, Salamanca Tree Hiddle, was afraid of lots and lots of things. For example, I was terrified of car accidents, death, cancer, brain tumors, nuclear war, pregnant women, loud noises, strict teachers, elevators, and scads of other things. But I was not afraid of spiders, snakes, and wasps. Phoebe and nearly everyone else in my new class did not have much fondness for these creatures. But on that day, when a dignified black spider was investigating my desk, 
I cupped my hands around it, carried it to the open window, and set it outside on the ledge. Mary Lou Finney said, Alpha and Omega, will you look at that? Beth Ann was as white as milk. All around the room, people were acting as if I had single-handedly taken on a fire-breathing dragon. What I have since realized is that if people expect you to be brave, sometimes you pretend that you are, even when you are frightened down to your very bones. But this was later, during the whole thing with Phoebe's lunatic, that I realized this. At this point in my story, Graham interrupted me to say, Why, Salamanca, of course you're brave. All the Hiddles are brave. It's a family trait. Look at your daddy, your mama. Mama is not a real Hiddle, I said. She practically is, Graham said. You can't be married to a Hiddle that long and not become a Hiddle. That's not what my mother used to say. She would tell my father, you Hiddles are a mystery to me. I'll never be a true Hiddle. She did not say this proudly. She said it as if she were sorry about it, as if it were some sort of failing in her. My mother's parents, my other set of grandparents, are Pickfords, and they are as unlike my grandparents' Hiddle as a donkey is unlike a pickle. Grandmother and Grandfather Pickford stand straight up as if sturdy steel poles ran down their backs. They wear starched, ironed clothing, and when they are shocked or surprised, which is often, they say, really, is that so? And their eyes open wide and their mouths turn down at the corners. Once I asked my mother why Grandmother and Grandfather Pickford never laughed. My mother said, they're just so busy being respectable. It takes a lot of concentration to be that respectable. And then my mother laughed and laughed in a gentle way. And you could tell her own spine was not made of steel because she bent in half laughing and laughing. My mother said that Grandmother Pickford's one act of defiance in her whole life as a Pickford was in naming her. Grandmother Pickford, whose own name is Gay Feather, named my mother Chan Hansen. It's an Indian name meaning sweet, I'm sorry, meaning tree sweet juice, or in other words, maple sugar. Only Grandmother Pickford ever called my mother by her Indian name though. Everyone else called my mother Sugar. Most of the time, my mother seemed nothing like her parents at all, and it was hard for me to imagine that she had come from them. But occasionally, in small, unexpected moments, the corners of my mother's mouth would turn down and she'd say, Really? Is that so? And sound exactly like a Pickford. Chapter four, that's what I'm telling you. On the day that Phoebe sat next to me at lunch and told me I was brave, she invited me to her house for dinner. To be honest, I was relieved that I would not have to eat at Margaret's again. I did not want to see dad and Margaret smiling at each other. I wanted everything to be like it was. I wanted to be back in Bybanks, Kentucky, in the hills and the trees, near the cows and chickens and pigs. I wanted to run down the hill from the barn and through the kitchen door that banged behind me and see my mother and father sitting at the table peeling apples. Phoebe and I walked home from school together. We stopped briefly at my house so that I could call my father at work. 
Margaret had helped him find a job selling farm machinery. He said it made him happy as a clown at high water to know I had a new friend. Maybe this is really why he was happy, I thought. Or maybe it was because he could be alone with Margaret Cadaver. Phoebe and I then walked to her house. As we passed Margaret Cadaver's house, a voice called out, Sal, Sal, is that you? In the shadows on the porch, Margaret's mother, Mrs. Partridge, sat in a wicker rocker. A thick, gnarled cane with handled carve in the shape of a cobra's head lay across her knees. Her purple dress had slipped up over her bony knees, which were spread apart, and I hate to say it, but you could see right up her skirt. Around her neck was a yellow feather scarf. My boa, she once told me, my most favoritest boa. As I started up the walk, Phoebe pulled on my arm. Don't go up there, she said. It's only Mrs. Partridge, I said. Come on. Who's that with you, Mrs. Partridge said. What's that on her face? I knew what she was going to do. See, she did this to me with me the first time I met her. Phoebe placed her hands on her own face and felt about. Come here, Mrs. Partridge said. She wriggled her crooked little fingers at Phoebe. Mrs. Partridge put her fingers up to Phoebe's face and mashed around gently over her eyelids and down her cheeks, just as I thought. It's two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Mrs. Partridge laughed a wicked laugh that sounded as if it were bouncing off jagged rocks. You're 13 years old. Yes, Phoebe said. I knew it, Mrs. Partridge said. I just knew it. She patted her yellow feather boa. This is Phoebe Winterbottom, I said. She lives right next door to you. When we left, Phoebe whispered, I wish you hadn't done that. I wish you hadn't told her I lived next door. Why not? You don't seem to know Mrs. Cadaver and Mrs. Partridge very well. well they haven't lived there very long, only a month or so. Don't you think it's remarkable that she guessed your age? I don't see what's so remarkable about it. Before I could explain, Phoebe started telling me about the time that she and her mother, father, and sister Prudence had gone to the state fair. At one booth, a crowd was gathered around a tall, thin man. So what was he doing, I asked. That's what I'm telling you, Phoebe said. Phoebe had a way of sounding like a grown-up sometimes. When she said, that's what I'm telling you, she sounded like a grown-up talking to a child. What he was doing was guessing people's ages. All around, people were saying, oh, and amazing, and how does he do that? He had to guess your correct age within one year or else you won a teddy bear. How did he do it, I asked. That's what I'm telling you, Phoebe said. The thin man would look someone over carefully, close his eyes, and then he would point his finger at the person and shout, 72! And everyone? He guessed everyone to be 72? So, she said, that's what I'm trying to tell you. I was just giving an example. He might have said 10 or 30 or 72. It just depended on the person. He was astounding. I really thought it was more astounding that Mrs. Partridge could do this, but I didn't say anything. Phoebe's father wanted the thin man to guess his age. My father thinks he looks very young, and he was certain he could fool the man. After studying my father, the thin man closed his eyes, pointed his finger at my father, and shouted, 
52. My father gave a little yelp, and all around people were automatically saying, oh, and amazing, and all that. But my father stopped them. What? Phoebe pulled on one of her yellow curls. I think she wished she hadn't started this story in the first place, because he wasn't anywhere near 52. He was only 38. Oh, and all day long, my father followed us through the fair, carrying his prize, a large green teddy bear. He was miserable. He kept saying, 52, 52, do I look 52? Does he, I said. Phoebe pulled harder on her hair. No, he does not look 52, he looks 38. She was very defensive about her father. Phoebe's mother was in the kitchen. I'm making blackberry pie, Mrs. Winterbottom said. I hope you like blackberries. Is there something wrong? Really, if you don't like blackberries, I could... No, I said, I, I like blackberries very much. I just have some allergies, I think. To blackberries, Mrs. Winterbottom said. No, not to blackberries. The truth is, I do not have allergies, but I could not admit that blackberries reminded me of my mother. Mrs. Winterbottom made me and Phoebe sit down at the table and tell her about our day. Phoebe told her about Mrs. Partridge guessing her age. She's really remarkable, I said. Phoebe said, it's not that remarkable, Sal. I wouldn't exactly use the word remarkable. But Phoebe, I said, Mrs. Partridge is blind. Both Phoebe and her mother said, blind? Later, Phoebe said to me, don't you think it's odd that Mrs. Partridge, who is blind, could see something about me, but I, who can see, was blind about her? And speaking of odd, there's something very odd about that Mrs. Cadaver. Margaret, I said. She scares me half to death, Phoebe said. Why? That's what I'm telling you, she said. First, there is that name, Cadaver. You know what cadaver means. Actually, I did not. It means dead body. Are you sure, I said. Of course I'm sure, Sal. You can check the dictionary if you want. Do you know what she does for a living? What her job is? Yes, I was pleased to say. I was pleased to know something. She's a nurse. Exactly, Phoebe said. Would you want a nurse whose name meant dead body and that hair? Don't you think all that sticking out red hair is spooky? And that voice, it reminds me of dead leaves all blowing around on the ground. This was Phoebe's power. In her world, no one was ordinary. People were either perfect, like her father, or more often, they were lunatics or ax murderers. She could convince me of just about anything especially about Margaret Cadaver. From that day on, Margaret Cadaver's hair did look spooky and her voice did sound exactly like dead leaves. Somehow it was easier to deal with Margaret if there were reasons not to like her. And I definitely did not want to like her. Do you want to know an absolute secret? Phoebe said, I did. Promise not to tell? I promised. Maybe I shouldn't, she said. Your father goes over there all the time. He likes her, doesn't he? She twirled her finger through her curly hair and let those big blue eyes roam over the ceiling. Her name is Mrs. Cadaver, right? 
Have you ever wondered what happened to Mr. Cadaver? I never really thought about, well, I think I know, Phoebe said, and it is awful, purely awful.